A reminder of the context of Ephesians as we've been going through Ephesians. If you remember, the first three chapters in Ephesians are really Paul talking about our position in Christ. What has Christ done? What has Jesus done to put us in right standing with God? He talks about, uses language like that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That we can know that God's chosen us, that God's forgiven us, that God's accepted us because of what Jesus has done. And that God has therefore said we have this position, this, we are members of his family. He's adopted us into his family as we are in Christ, because we are in Christ. And so he spends the first three chapters just focusing on what God's done for us. That we would understand that's the foundation of our faith. It's what God's done for us. That's what separates Christianity from other religions. Other religions say do. Christianity says done. God's already done it. He's already provided for us. We get into Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and Paul's beginning to say, okay, now here's how we respond to that truth. Here's how we, if we're in Christ, here's how we walk with Christ. Here's what the walk is meant to look like. It doesn't like me, that Mike. If we were in Ephesians 6, I'd say it was a demon, but we're not, so... Okay. So, <laughs> this is where we are in Ephesians 5. We're in the place where Paul is beginning to unpack what it looks like to walk with Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. And as we're walking with God as part of his family, what does that look like? And so we've seen in chapter 4 and now into chapter 5, we're beginning to see what it looks like to actually walk with with Jesus. So what we're going to talk about today is this, we're going to focus really on this phrase that Paul uses in verse 2 of chapter 5 where he talks about, he gives us a command of walk in love. What does it mean to walk in love? I mean, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound really nice? We should just walk in love. Yeah, all we need is love. I mean, this is, isn't it so, this is love. It's just beautiful and it's warm and it's smiley and flowers and picnics and isn't it great? And we can kind of think this is what it is. We, we see love and we, there's something in us that intuitively knows love's the best, loves what we want. We're all pursuing love. We want to be loved and to love. But the problem is we, so few of us have a grasp on what love really is, what God says love really is. So what we really want to see today is we, we want to understand, okay, how does love work? How does God's love work? Because we're called here in verse 1 to imitate God. And if we're going to imitate God, if we're going to love like God, we have to understand how God's love works. So I'm going to give you three basic things. And the first thing you have to understand is, listen, love starts with God. It starts with Him. When Paul writes, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, he's wanting us to understand something. He's wanting us to understand, listen, your imitation of God needs to be in the same way that a dear child imitates a parent. Now, as a parent of five, I can tell you, 
my kids do, I've done a lot of things that I do. They've imitated me in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes the things they've repeated aren't things I wanted, uh, wish they would have learned. But still, there's an imitation that happens with parenting. And I will say this, the better the relationship parent to child that there is, the more prone that, that child is to imitate that parent. It's amazing how, uh, how my uh, kids, when they're little, they all wanted to put on my shoes and walk in my shoes. And it was cute, and of course, I have big feet, and they had little feet, and it was kind of fun to watch. But it was like something about putting on dad's shoes, walking in dad's shoes. Because when your kids are small, they think their parents are amazing. They think everything they do is great. They outgrow that, unfortunately. But they, they think it's great when, they're, when you're little, and when they're little. And so this, this is kind of the picture that Paul is drawing. He's saying, listen, as dear children, as those who know that you're loved as children, imitate the God who loves you. See, the reality is we will love the way we perceive we're loved. We don't always love the way we're loved, but we always love the way we perceived we are loved. This is, this is a, a fact of life, whether you're, you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, you will love the way you perceive to be loved. This is why the world says, this is what the, 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 the normal kind of consensus of the world, I, I saw that someone had posted a, a video on Facebook this week uh, from some Christian dating guru. And because this person was a Christian, I thought I better watch, not, I'm sorry, not a Christian dating guru, just a dating guru. Because a person was a Christian who posted, I thought I better see what this is. So I watched it, and it was ridiculous. It was just not true at all. And the point of this dating guru was this. Okay, here's what love is. They were saying, love is about how you view yourself. This woman said, the reason you can't have a good relationship with people is because if you're always looking for love outside yourself, you'll never have a good relationship with people. And so they say, okay, so if you can learn to love yourself, to esteem yourself high enough, then you'll be able to love other people. The problem with that is, is, is that when we're honest with ourselves, we know that what's there isn't that great. It's just not. And that, that's not some sort of a, a psychological inability. It's just a reality. If, if we're being honest about ourselves, even the very standards that we want to make for ourselves, we fall short of those standards. This is how we are. And so if, if being loved is about my perception of myself, Okay, if I'm going to say, okay, my perception, I have to love myself, and then how I love myself is how people are going to love me. Guess what I tend to do? I tend to be hypercritical because I am hypercritical about myself. But when I recognize, okay, the greatest love that is towards me is not self-love. In fact, self-love tends to be damaging. But the greatest love towards me is God's love, and God's love for me has less to do with me than it does with him as they understand God's love, then I'm able to love that way. I'm able to love the way He loves me. In fact, where the world says, hey, love's about how you view yourself, the Scripture says, love is what God defines. God tells us what love is. There's a Scripture in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that says, he who does not love does not know God. You know why? For God is love. Now, you can't switch those words around. You can't say love is God. Because when we, if you were to say love is God, you're assuming you know what love is. But God has said God is love. God defines what love is. Now, we see this perfectly demonstrated in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, between Jesus and His Father. Listen to this. John 15, 9, 
Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, there's something that we have to understand about the love of God. When we say God is love, what we mean is not just that God is loving, that God acts, does acts of love. He does that. God is loving. But the Bible says he's more than that. He is love. He defines what love is itself. Now, for God to define love, he can't just be one. He has to be three in one. And so this is what the Bible reveals to us, that we see God as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And God the Father and God the Son have always had this perfect love relationship that's been wrapped up in God the Spirit, wrapped around by God the Spirit. They've always enjoyed this perfect love relationship. So when we say God is love, we don't just mean He does loving things. We mean God has always been and always will be love. That's who He is. He didn't say, gosh, I'm I'm a good God and I'm a big God and I'm an all-powerful God. I just wish I had somebody love. Someone to love. If I could have someone to love, then I would be complete. No. God is complete in himself. God is love. Jesus reveals this to us when he talks about the, the relationship that he has with his Father. In fact, when Jesus prays in John chapter 17, we get more insight into this. Listen to this. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory, that's who God is, you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. That phrase, before the world began, is another way to say eternally. I have, I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. So when Jesus is praying for us as believers, he's saying, Lord, I really want them to experience what you and I have always experienced for eternity past, this perfect, unbroken love. So when Paul says back in Ephesians, when Paul says, hey, imitate God as dear children, in fact, some of your versions might say dearly loved children because that's actually what the word there is. The word for dear there, it's it's from the same root agape that we see used for love all throughout the New Testament. Dearly loved children. If you don't get anything else, get this, understand this. If you struggle to love, it's probably because you struggle to believe that you actually are loved. Do you actually believe that you're loved by God? Now now, now here's what happens. We tend to say, okay, well, I, I like the idea of maybe being loved by God, but I look at my life and I go, if God loves me, how come my job's so rough? If God loves me, how come I'm flat broke? If if God loves me, how come I don't have any good relationships or it feels like I have very few good relationships in my life? If God loves me, why are these circumstances not as good as they're supposed to be? And this is natural. We all do this. But what does Paul do? Paul says, no, no, no. Forget about your circumstances for a second. Here's how we see God's love demonstrated. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, And walk in love, notice, as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. See, Christ loved us for our benefit. This is what what, what he's done for us. He didn't love us because he thought, okay, if I'll love them, maybe they'll love me back. He didn't love us to get something from us. He didn't need anything from us. He already had everything he needed from the Father. But he loved us to give something to us. This is the kind of the theme verse for our church is Mark 
10.45 that says, just as Jesus speaking, he says for, speaking of himself, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's a ransom? It's a payment made to free somebody else, isn't it? To give your life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. He came to do something for us. This is important because when we're talking about learning to walk in love, we have to understand that love starts with God, which means, yes, we need to perceive the way God loves us, and then we want to imitate that so that when we're loving people, we're being like Christ, we're loving them for their benefit. We're not loving them so they'll like us or loving them so they'll love us back. We're loving them for what's best for them. That's a big order, isn't it? That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. You can see why the Scripture says that it's the Spirit who has to produce that love, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's got to be God's Spirit who produces that love in us. But what else does he say in verse 2? He says, notice, that Christ has, has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice, notice, to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, this in one sense is describing, using kind of Old Testament terminology to describe the kind of sacrifice that Jesus made. It was a sacrifice for sin, an atoning sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. But it also shows who he was trying to please in loving us. In loving us by giving himself for us, who is Jesus trying to please? The Father. He wants to please the Father. Why? Does Jesus want to please the Father because he thinks, okay, the Father's not going to be happy with me unless I do everything perfect? Is that what it is? Is he that scared child? Is that the way Jesus is? No, listen to this. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. What happens? He, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, and what happens? God says from heaven, Matthew 3, 17, a, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is, is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In whom well pleased. See, the Son is always obedient to the Father, and the, the Father is always pleased in the Son. This is why we have security about our position in Christ, because it's Christ's pleasing of the Father that, that, that guarantees that the Father is pleased with us as we put our faith in Christ. It's Christ's obedience to the Father that guarantees that, that God accepts us as righteous. It's His work that makes us secure with the Father. <laughs> but it's also important for us to see this as an example to follow. Because love starts with God, which means, listen, my motivation for loving you has to be I want to love God. Because if my motivation for you is anything other than loving God, I'm really not loving you the way God defines love. I'm manipulating you to get you to do what I want. Make me feel good. Affirm me. Please me. That's really what I'm doing. But if, I, if I'm seeking to imitate God and love the way God loves, then I think, okay, God, thank you that I'm a dearly beloved child, that I'm in Christ. And thank you that Christ has given himself for me. So what I want to do as, as a dearly beloved child, I want to please you by laying down my life for these people. That's what I want to do. That's exactly what Jesus did. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 2. It says this. Though Christ Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, 
He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself, notice, in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Do you understand? That, that what, what Jesus sets the standard for us, the, he, he shows us, okay, this is what love is. Love is who God is. And love is demonstrated by saying, okay, I want to please the Father for the benefit of other people. And I want to do that as someone who's already fully accepted eternally to the Father. That's what Jesus does. That's what he calls us to. Anything less than that is really not love the way God calls us to. It might be kindness. It might be, it might be a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But I'm saying this is what God wants the maturest towards. This is what Paul's saying that the transformation looks like as God begins to change us. He teaches us to love like this. This is the measure. This is why the, the, the writers of the New Testament use phrases like, above all things, put on love. Love is a priority. Why? Because love is the very character of God that's demonstrated as we put others before ourselves as we are committed to them in relationship, as we, as we seek to bless them, not use them. That's love. Now, love starts with God. We have to get that through our heads. If we don't understand anything else, the rest of the stuff won't mean anything, okay? But love doesn't just start with God. Love also, because remember, this is us being called as Jesus followers to imitate God and to, to walk in love. It also means that we love keeps God's standards. Look what he says clearly in verse 3. He says, but fornication, which is basically any sexual activity outside biblical marriage, one man, one woman for life. That's, that's, fornication is a general word that kind of covers all those things. It's the Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornography. So it would include pornography. But fornication, notice, and all uncleanness. Now, uncleanness is a word that can mean moral uncleanness. It can mean ceremonial uncleanness, like you're not doing your religious things the right way. In this context, Paul's probably connecting it, in a sense, with the idea of religious uncleanness, but with a, a sexual application. We'll talk about that in a second. He says, but fornication, all uncleanness, or, notice he didn't say and, but or, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Now, covetousness is a term that basically means wanting something that you're not meant to have, basically. So, it's, we, we get confused, I think, as Christians with this idea of covetousness. In one sense, we, we kind of, especially, in a, and I see this a lot in America, among American Christians, we say, okay, Really, we act like we can never really covet. As long as I'm spending my money on what I want, it's not covetousness because I'm not, getting, I'm not trying to get something what somebody else has. But actually, what we're trying to do is often keep up with the Joneses. So we are actually coveting this causing us to spend this money on that thing. So, so it, 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 sometimes we can be to one extreme where we don't see anything as covetousness unless we're looking at someone else and goes, gosh, I really want that. Unless we can identify that sort of feeling, we think, oh, I'm not really coveting. But actually, coveting is, is, is always is pursuing anything, desiring anything that God doesn't intend us to have. Do you know the Bible, doesn't, the Bible says really clearly, it's not bad to be rich. 
It's really clear. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, you can read it. It's not bad to be rich. But you know what's really bad for a Christian? Desiring to be rich. That's the danger. That's covetousness. I want something. Well, if God wants you to be rich, you'll be rich. What you know God wants you to do is to work hard and to do the best that you can and to be wise, a wise steward of whatever God gives you. Now, if God gives you a whole bunch of money, so that you, that, therefore you're rich, well, great. That's what he wanted to do. But to think, oh, God, please, just, I, I mean, I've done this. I'll confess, I've done this. God, I, I can't play the lottery in a clear conscience, but have my dad play the lottery. And if he wins the lottery, then I'm just inheriting that, and then I'll be rich. And I'll use it for the kingdom. I'll build the church of building God. I'll, I'll be like Rick Warren. I'll pay back all of salary I've ever had. Just, what am I doing? I'm coveting. I'm desiring something that obviously isn't not God, what God wants for me. Now again, in this context, I think Paul's also in connecting this to this idea of coveting sexually. I want more sex than God wants me to have whether it be with a, a different gender that I'm currently able to have it with or with a different person or a different frequency, whatever it is. But you're coveting this. You're desiring this more than you want. Now, this is important because the, what Paul says here, especially this little phrase he uses in verse, th- in verse 3, as is fitting for the saints. He's saying this. He's saying our behavior identifies us. We are identified by our behavior. And so he's saying, listen, this stuff shouldn't be any part of us. People, if, when someone who professes to be a Christian gets involved in sex outside of marriage, people should be going, whoa, I thought that wasn't supposed to happen. Not, well, you know, they're just like everybody else, I guess, or they're hypocrites. When, when Christians are are banging on about money. I need money. I want money. Give me money. God wants you to be rich. All this nonsense. People should go, that's weird. I, I thought Christians weren't supposed to be like that. Instead, they go, well, that's, that's religious television for you. It shouldn't even be named among us, Paul's saying. Why? Because our behavior identifies us. We are identified by what we do. Now, here, here's interesting in this context. The Ephesians, remember Paul's writing to believers in Ephesus, the Ephesians were identified by the worship of the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis, or the goddess Diana. You can read about this in Acts chapter 19. They had this huge temple, was at the time one of the seven wonders of the world, they had this huge temple to Artemis, and part of the temple worship would be going to the temple, paying money, and sleeping with the temple prostitutes. And you could sleep with men or women. And so you would be involved in worship by, by doing this. She was the goddess of fertility or the goddess of sex. She was the deification of our sexual behavior. In fact, it's interesting. So popular was the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, that there was a whole, a whole economy based on this. There was a huge economy based on this. They would make these little trinkets of Diana and they would sell them. And that's why if you read in, verse, in uh, Acts 19, you can read the story about how these guys were persecuting Paul because Paul was going around not preaching against uh, Diana per se, but calling people to believe in Jesus, which means repenting and not you know, going to have these religious orgies at Diana's temple. Um, and so what was happening is so many people were becoming Christians, they're going these guys, these craftsmen are getting mad. They're going, hey, he's going to ruin our business. He's going to mess up our business. Now, now, this is interesting because 
there's this picture here that we have where, where when Paul's doing this, the people that read this would have thought, okay, I was identified as an Ephesians, uh, as, an, uh, as an Ephesian based on how I worshipped Artemis. Now I'm a Christian, I need to be identified as a Christian based on how I worship Jesus. And both those worships have to do with behavior, how I act. Earlier in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, in this city called Antioch, uh, the, the Antioch Christians were the first kind of Christians who were actually not just reaching out to other Jews, but reaching out to non-Jewish people. And the Bible says really clearly that God's hand was all over them because they were going kind of, you might say, outside the church walls to reach people. They were really trying to reach the lost. And God was doing a radical thing there, but they were also being radically persecuted for that. And there's this little note in, a, in Acts chapter 11 that says, and, and they were first called Christians in Antioch. Christian being little Christ, that's what it means. And it wasn't a compliment. It was originally meant as an insult. Now, the Christians took it on as a compliment. They thought, man, if you want to call us little Christians, little Christ, that's great. But the point is this. It was their behavior that identified them as Christ followers. You understand what I'm saying? This is really important for us to see. Love, if we say, okay, God, I want to love the way you love, that love is demonstrated by our behavior. We keep what God's standards are. We don't succumb to the standards of the world. I saw this article uh, this week on the internet about this new technology that they've uh, uh, come up with. They've, they've come up with um, an app for Android phones uh, that's been developed where it, it sort of uses the gyroscope and another, some other dev- kind of device that's in most modern mobile phones. And what it does is it measures the gates of your walk. It, it measures how you walk. Because I don't know if you know this, but each of us walk a certain way. Have you ever been kind of in the city and you see someone down there and you think, is that, is that, is that Bob? Look at the way, that's, that's Bob. Look at the way he walks. That's definitely Bob. You know what I'm talking about? And so there is something to, to that. There's a science to that that we actually each walk a certain way in a very identifiable way. It's not as accurate as fingerprints or a, your irises, but it's still an accurate thing. So they've come up with this technology, this app that you can get for your phone. And what the app does is it measures how you walk so that if someone steals your phone and they're walking with it, it locks out and they can never use it. Only you can use it because it recognizes your walk. Do you see what I'm saying? When you become a Christian, you get this app. His name is the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And he teaches you how to walk so that when people get a hold of your life, they go, okay, Jesus owns this person. The behavior shows this. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. He's saying, don't be the way, the Ephes- you're not an Ephesian. That's not your identity anymore. Your identity is you're a Christian. You're someone who follows Christ. Now he says in verse four, he continues with the same thought, but he says in verse four, he says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather given of thanks. Now those words, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, they're not used anywhere else in Scripture. So the way we know what they mean is more by how they're used in this context. And it's pretty clear that they are, as they're translated in English, words that mean using any kind of dirty language. So obscenity or uh, sort of coarse jesting would be like sexual witticisms. 
And I have to say, I, I just got to confess to you, man. I was confessing to my wife. I'm going to confess to you guys. This is, it, it's, it's, I was really convicted, okay? I'm not saying this is what you should, I'm not putting this on you. I'm saying this is how God convicted me. Some of the TV shows I watch that I think are hilariously funny are all about this. I was really convicted. Like, how, how could I justify laughing at these things? They are funny. I mean, I grew up in a house full of obscenities. We used the F word for an adjective, a noun, an adverb. I mean, this is the way we talked before I became a Christian, okay? So some of that stuff still kind of lingers there. And watching these shows, I'm going, man, I should I be watching these shows, you know? And, and I've justified it. They don't show anything, so... And again, I'm not saying what, what, what God's telling you to do, you know? I'm, I'm not making you sign a paper that says, I will not watch this kind of television anymore. I'm just saying, I, I was convicted by this. Because even though I don't use this kind of language, I, I try really hard not to joke in this way, though I have to my head and say I have joked this way, even as a Christian. I'm watching it on television. But there's something more here. And it's what Paul says again at the end of the verse. He says, instead of these things, what's, what, which are not fitting for us as those who are saints set apart for God's purposes, what we should be doing, notice this, is rather giving thanks. In other words, we're not just, it's not just that we're identified by our behavior. We keep God's standards because we're identified by God's behavior or by our behavior, but also because we're characterized or we should be characterized by gratitude. Now, why would he bring up Thanksgiving in this context that's talking really about how we deal with sexuality? Because there is a connection here. Here's the way I see it. What the, what the Ephesians were guilty of, what most of the, the Greek and Roman world was guilty of, what we are guilty of in our culture is deifying sex, our sexuality. We make it something that we worship. And we pollute sex when we worship it, we pollute it. We make it something that's meant for good and pleasure and, and a, 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 a coherence of husband and wife. We turn it into something dirty and something poisonous when we worship it. We think this is the ultimate. We pollute it. But also, when he's talking about sort of joking about sex, we actually cheapen sex when we joke about it. Now again, I'm not talking about husband and wife you that are married, you know exactly what I mean. There are little things that you guys laugh about in bed together that nobody else knows, nobody else needs to know. You know what I'm talking about. If, you, if you're single and you're going, that's weird. Well, if you stay single, it'll, it's all right. You don't have to worry about it. If you get married, you'll know what I mean. We teach people in marriage counseling, look, when it comes to physical intimacy, if you're not laughing about things, you're probably getting really too serious about this stuff. It's funny. So I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about if you're making lewd jokes about things, you're cheapening sex, something beautiful and holy that God's created. We cheapen sex when we joke about it. Also, there's been a tendency, there's been a, there is a reality that some of our kind of Christian forefathers, especially in the Victorian age, some of the Puritans got a bad reputation of vilifying sex. They're like afraid of it. They were so afraid of their own sexual desire that they almost made it bad and evil, like any desire for sex is somehow, ugh, I'm afraid of that. But we're vilifying sex when we do that. Sex isn't evil. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. God made it. God, do you realize, God, you do realize, right, sex wasn't the forbidden fruit. I mean, some people think this, you know, the Garden of Eden, oh yeah, Adam and Eve wanted to have sex. 
Yeah, so God made him naked and then didn't want to have sex? No, God made him naked and said, you need to have sex. I'm commanding you to enjoy this and be fruitful and multiply. This is what he says. For the forbidden fruit that they took had nothing to do with sexuality. No, we shouldn't vilify sex. We do that when we're afraid of it. But listen, we sanctify sex. That is, we put it in the position that God set it apart for when we give thanks for it. When we're thankful for it. Now, you that are single here, I know there's a lot of you that are single here, you might be going, okay, how am I supposed to get, you told me I can't be involved in sex and you don't want me to give thanks for it. How can I give thanks for it? If you have a sexual desire, you can give thanks to God that God's invented sex, that God's invented that. You can also thank God as a single person that God has been clear about the boundaries for that desire, that your Father in heaven loves you enough to say, here's the boundaries so this doesn't destroy your life. You can give thanks for that. If you're like the rest of us, all of us are in some way sexually broken, you can give thanks that God forgives and redeems us from our brokenness. When it comes to our sexuality, there's a lot to be thankful for. This is part of us keeping God's standards. You know, I've, I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I've been a, I've been a pastor for 26 plus years, 26 years, done a lot of marriage counseling. And it's amazing how many people will come for marriage counseling and one of the issues in their life is, uh, might be um, sort of a, a less than satisfying sex life. There might be problems sexually in the, in the marriage. Often that's just a symptom, not a cause. But they'll have this issue and it's amazing how, especially when it comes to husbands and wives who never are intimate together. They just, they just don't do that anymore. And it's amazing how often they are, those people are so critical of single people who are falling into sexual sin. Because they think, oh, we're abstaining in marriage, therefore we're sexually holy, but those people that are falling into sexual sin, they're guilty. Do you realize if you are abstaining in marriage on purpose without agreement for prayer and fasting, you're in sin? Well, that will shake you up on it. Now again, there's times to abstain, obviously. But read 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not making this up. This is not some modern interpretation of Scripture. Read 1 Corinthians 7 if you don't believe me. This, there's nothing, I'm not saying that God says, here's the frequency. But I am saying God's saying, you should be thankful for your sexuality, and that sexuality is meant to serve your marriage partner. That's keeping God's standard. Are you following me? It's prudish and unbiblical and legalistic for us to say, oh, all that sex outside of marriage is bad, so sex must be bad, so we just will kind of stay away from it. That's wrong. That's vilifying sex. It's not God's standard. You should be communicating about your sex life together as married people. So are you guys all uncomfortable now? Sorry, let's move on. This is what happens when you go to a church that's pastored by an American. I'm not going to hold back. <laughs> now, Paul goes on to say, okay, we've talked about love starts with God. We've talked about love keeps God's standards. But also, listen, this is the hard bit. Love, listen, is sober about God's judgment. This is interesting. It's, it's tempting to kind of just 
gloss over this section, especially in the context of Ephesians, because you could read Ephesians and go, man, Paul's gone, taken three chapters to make sure his readers knew of how secure their position is in Christ. And then he says something that is crazy sobering. He says, look at verse 5. He says, For this you know. He says, you're already totally aware of this, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. Do you notice he uses the same words? He says, okay, when he says, look, fornication, uncleanness, uh, covetousness, they shouldn't even be named among the saints. But then he says, and you know that anybody who practices these things, if you are a fornicator, if you're an unclean person, if you're, an, if you're a covetous person, you're basically an adulterer, and you can know you have no inheritance. We have to be sober about this, people. Listen, this is me loving you right now. This is me, this is God loving us by giving us this warning in Scripture. Listen, to reject God's standard is to reject God's inheritance. Do you know what an inheritance is? Your inheritance is what you expect your parents to give you. Now, I didn't expect much from my parents because they were poor, so they couldn't leave me much. But you know what I expect from my Heavenly Father? Everything He's promised but you know what that loving Heavenly Father says to me? He says, if you are going to reject my standard, if you're going to go, okay, I'll take all that inheritance, but I want my inheritance now, like the prodigal son. I want to spend it now. I want my pleasure now. He says, then you really don't want my inheritance. Because if you believe what I say about what I have waiting for you, that everything that I have waiting for you is far greater and what you think you're going to have by being one of these people, then you really don't want my inheritance. This is not a condition for our salvation as much as it is the result of our salvation. When God saves us, He gives us a new heart so that we desire the things that He wants for us. We see Jesus and we say, Jesus, I want you. Does it mean that we never want the fornication or the uncleanness or the covetous? Does that mean we never go that way? Of course it doesn't mean that. What it means is, though I still want that stuff sometimes, I want Jesus more. He's my inheritance and I am his. I want him more. That's what it means. In fact, Paul's so serious about this. What does he say in verse 6? He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are heavy words. They really do some explaining. Listen. One of the things that Paul's making clear is, is that people can be deceiving even talking about Jesus. People can talk about Jesus, talk about God's grace, talk about Christ dying for us and rising from the dead and be deceiving you. That's part of what he's saying. This is what false teachers do. False teachers deceive us about what God says. They'll take part of what God says and they'll twist it into something that God actually hasn't said. Now, listen. What he's talking about here, when he says the wrath of God. Don't think of God kind of going, man, 
Those people, oh, I can't, oh, I'm going to lose it. Those, don't think that way. God's not like us. We get annoyed, we get angry, and we flare off and we have an outburst of wrath. This is not what this is talking about. This is talking about how God always, at all times, forever, views evil behavior. He views sin. God looks at it and, and he says, I have a settled and just judgment of that. I've already condemned that as wrong and those who do that as guilty. You go, that sounds harsh. It sounds harsh to us because we want ourselves to be the judge. I'll be the judge. I want to be the judge. We hate when people judge us, but we have no problem judging other people. But you know what? None of us are the judge. God is the judge. God is the one who determines what's right and what's wrong, who's guilty and who's innocent. And here's the reality. The reality is, he says, all of us have fallen short of his standard. We fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. All of us. God should, in fact, we, <coughs> in a sense, he has pronounced all of us guilty already. But this is what's so amazing about the love of God. Because the love of God is this way. God so loves the world that he will not allow the world to stay in sin. People say, how can there be a God of love when there's so much suffering in the world? If he is really loving and really all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about the suffering? He has. The suffering comes from sin. So God says, I'm going to become a man and I'm going to live a perfect life and I'm going to die a, a ransom death and I'm going to raise from the dead so that all this sin can be forgiven. And he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge and rid all the world of sin and get rid of everything that causes suffering. So there'll be no more sin, death, pain, or sorrow. The cross and the resurrection prove that not only does God hate the suffering, he's done something about it. Which is why, listen, when he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of, uh, sons of disobedience. He's, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, people, the sons of obedience, disobedience are people who have rejected what God's done. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, repent and believe in me whom God sent. Not an option, not like, here's one way to live your life. He's saying, I'm speaking the authority of God. Trust me. Follow me. Know that I have come to pay the price so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be right with me. And if we go, I don't want to believe that, we're being disobedient. And that disobedience will manifest itself in doing these kinds of behaviors. We will be the fornicators or unclean people or covetous people or all of the above. We will be this way. See, guys, we're not loving God if we ignore his wrath. And I wouldn't be loving you if I try to water this down. The Lord loves you. 
He wants a relationship with you. Christ died for you to have it. Repent means to turn back to God. To say, God, I may want the sin, but I do want you more. I do believe that what you've done for me in Jesus is enough. Now, last thing, we're almost done. Verse, 40, verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is important. Some of your versions say something a little bit different. Um, it makes it sound like, I can't remember what the word was, but it's, uh, it makes it sound like, don't sort of be with them. So don't you believers be with non-believers. That is not what the, teach, the Bible teaches at all. God calls us to love everybody, calls us to have real relationships with people whether they believe or not. He calls us to that. Jesus modeled that for us. What he's saying is this, basically, he's saying, look, you can love sinners without sinning. <laughs> Loving sinners does not require you to sin. Now, now, here's what's tricky. Sometimes the things that we see as sinful, non-believers don't see as sinful. And so they, get, they think we're kind of weird that we won't do. So they go, come on, let's go back. We're going to do shots at this club. It's going to be great. You're going, eh, no, I, I can't really do that. Nah, no thanks. But sometimes we deem things as sinful that aren't necessarily sinful. Hey, we're going to go out to this pub, we're going to have a drink, and just going to hang out for a couple hours, do you want to come? Oh, I, I couldn't go to a pub. I don't drink, that would be sinful. It wouldn't be sinful for you to go to a pub. Have a Coke. Have a sparkling water. If you're afraid to drink. Or if you feel like you have freedom to drink, have one and be done. Sometimes we distance ourselves from unbelievers because we're so afraid they're going to defile us. Do we believe that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Do we believe we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Now, at the same time, we don't have to go out doing things. You don't have to, girls, to relate to your friends. Okay, I'm talking to you younger women now, maybe some of you students. You don't have to go out scantily clad to a club to relate to your friends. You don't have to do that. You know, the Bible's pretty clear about being modest, and let's be, let's be honest, even the people in the clubs don't think they're being modest. They're being immodest on purpose. You don't have to do that to be along with your friends. You don't have to be pounding them back to be with your friends. You don't have to hang out in a room full of cannabis smoke <laughs> to love people. You don't have to listen. You don't have to put up with racist remarks to love people. In fact, you're not loving when you do that. We love people when we are sober about God's judgment towards us, but also towards people out there. If you walked by the river and you saw somebody drowning, who, or who looked like they're drowning, and you said, hey, are you okay? And they said, yeah, I'm a bit tired, but I'm fine. I'm the strongest swimmer in Norwich. I'll be fine. Look, you don't look like you're fine. And it says no swimming here. There's some current stuff that's dangerous. No, no, I'll be fine. If you walk and say, whatever, are you being loving? No, if you love that person, you go, dude, seriously, get out. Do you need help? I'm going to throw you the, the lifesaver, and you grab onto it. I'll pull you in. Now, if you throw it to them, they go, get away from me, freak. I don't want that. There's nothing you can do. 
but you're not loving them if you kind of go, oh, well, they chose to jump in. You're not loving them if you don't warn them. See, walking in love is a lot more than just being nice. Walking in love is us learning to live as those sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Learning to call as many people to come to know him as possible. Demonstrating at whatever cost God would cause us to, to spend, demonstrating the goodness of God by sacrificing for people. That's what it means to walk in love. Is that a standard that you can keep? Is that a standard that you can reject? Are you willing to seek God for the strength to do that? Let's do that right now together.